We want to share stories in a clinical way. We want to share how effective Nextride is. We want to build credibility ourselves through putting together this research. Um, and that will help us. We'll be able to leverage that to be able to build credibility with hospitals, with elderly care facilities, with some of our B2B partners. Um, but generally, consumers don't really care about the research, which is disappointing for me because I come from a research background. I love the research. But um, generally, what consumers want to see is videos of it working in different situations with different people. They don't care as much about published clinical trials and case studies and whatnot. If you had gradually lost the ability to walk, what would you give in order to be able to walk again? My name is Jeff, and this is How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare, all the way from amazing founders to amazing clinician scientists, as well as people who are shaping the thought patterns of how we're able to help people live happier, healthier, longer lives in the future. This time around, we rejoin the conversation with Sydney Collin, the co-founder of Deoro Devices, the company that's making Nextride the amazing device that's reshaping how people with gait disorders can walk again. Last time, we got to know Sydney and her story, but this time around, we dig a little bit deeper into the story as well as the amazing thoughts behind Sydney's amazing journey into making Nextride the next success for those with gait disorders. Let's get started. I think you have, to, to a great extent so far, the, the fact that you've managed to accomplish so much in such a short period of time is, I mean, super commendable. But one thing that I've noticed is that in the entire conversation that we've had, you've mentioned that you worked with patients directly to develop a device, uh, a company that was founded by, if I'm not incorrect, two engineers, um, and that was spread through patient network. But perhaps hidden in this conversation is the role that clinicians take. What I've heard or seen a lot of the time is, is examples of how clinicians are kind of linchpins to, I guess, the steps that biomedical device companies uh, need to take to get to market. So was there a role that clinicians had? Or, I mean, is there a different approach that your company took that didn't necessarily necessitate the formation of these often hard to form relationships with physicians, with clinicians, otherwise, who are super busy? We have amazing relationships with clinicians. I mean, physical therapists are huge advocates for our product. Um, we're in about 100 physical therapy clinics across the U.S. right now, including the Muhammad Ali Center, Harvard, UCLA, uh, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, you know, all of the the leading research institutes, and they use our product in clinic right now and recommend it to patients. So that has been definitely, I wouldn't say instrumental because that's not the our main sales channel. It's actually a really small sales channel for us, but it does help us spread awareness. It adds a lot of credibility for people to go in and see Nextride being used by their physical therapists or by their clinicians. Um, and it gives us a lot of great feedback. Like that, those relationships are what allowed us to really understand that Nextride is not only used for Parkinson's, but it's also, you know, able to help and make a huge impact on a lot of other mobility symptoms or mobility diagnoses. So we published 
a case study with Bellevue Hospital. We're in the middle of publishing a case study with Vanderbilt Medical Center and with um, Paragon Management Skilled Nursing Facility in New York, all in different different mobility disorders outside of Parkinson's. Um, one person was in a, a motor vehicle accident. One person was stroke. One was MSA. So our relationships with clinicians has been really instrumental in helping us understand how the next ray can best be used and with who. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to build on that then, why continue to publish? Is the publishing kind of a means by which you can demonstrate the value and new use cases of your device? Or is that publishing necessary so that you can demonstrate the safety and efficacy for your device for regulatory purposes? So we don't need it for any regulatory purposes. It's really just marketing. I mean, it's really just we want to share stories in a clinical way. We want to share how effective Nextride is. We want to build credibility ourselves through putting together this research. Um, and that will help us. We'll be able to leverage that to be able to build credibility with hospitals, with elderly care facilities, with some of our B2B partners. Um, but generally, consumers don't really care about the research, which is disappointing for me because I come from a research background. I love the research. But um, generally, what consumers want to see is videos of it working in different situations with different people. They don't care as much about published clinical trials and case studies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a two-pronged fork. You got to target um, the patients through targeted advertising through videos, et cetera, but also clinicians so that when patients bring the idea to clinicians, the clinicians can point to evidence and say, hey, this actually might be a good idea instead of being like, well, what's the evidence? That's exactly right. All right. Well, I mean, you you just mentioned stories, not only in videos, but also stories in the form of research, case studies, peer-reviewed articles, et cetera. Um, stories can also be used to raise rounds of funding. And you've told us the story of Jack and how Jack inspired so much of the work that you do. But what are the other hard facts, the numbers that convinced you and that you used to convince others that the work Oro is doing has legs? Well, there are over 100 peer-reviewed articles that have been published showing the efficacy of visual auditory cues and Parkinson's specifically. There are also peer-reviewed articles published showing efficacy in stroke and cerebral palsy and multiple sclerosis in PSP and a number of other areas. There's actually one research study that I can think of, probably more now, that shows the efficacy of these visual auditory cues in the elderly population in general. And so there is a plethora of research out there, an astronomical amount of research out there showing the efficacy that other people have done. Um, and then we started to publish our own research, right, showing how effective the next ride is in a number of other areas, and also specifically for the skilled nursing facilities. Okay, how can this help you get better patient outcomes faster? How can this help, you know, once people are out of the of the skilled nursing facility, help them be able to maintain their physical therapy, maintain their mobility so that they don't fall again and they don't end up back in a hospital, but they're able to 
remain a part of the community. Um, but if you want me to cite some of the research, uh, these visual auditory cues have been shown to reduce falls by 40% for people with Parkinson's, reduce the duration of freezing key episodes by 69%, and reduce the frequency of freezing episodes by 43%. And all of that is cited on our what's, website. If, if you were to cite a size of the market, though, or in more healthcare terms, how many patients this actually impacts, how many patients could what you're doing impact overall? So if we just look at what's been published with the Parkinson's, with freezing of gait, stroke with hemiparesis, which is the symptom that we go after, uh, cerebral palsy, people who are ambulatory, multiple sclerosis, people who are ambulatory, just with those diagnoses, that's 26 million globally and 4 million in the U.S. Jeez, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. And that's just with what has been published, right? We're doing our own research outside of that. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a pretty significant impact to quite a few people, quite a few, it probably is an understatement, a lot of people in the community overall. But I mean, you know, making all this change requires, to say the least, quite a bit of funding at the start to make sure that you're able to fund their research as well as to be able to fund the marketing teams that you mentioned that have helped develop the marketing so that you can distribute um, the product that you've made so that you're able to further fuel more research and more marketing. Um, that initial funding can come from angels as well as VCs. You've raised 1.5 mil from angels and 3 mil from VCs. Correct me if I'm wrong if you've raised more. But between the two, what is the difference between pitching to angels and pitching to VCs? Generally, there's just a lot more variety with angel investors because it's just individual high net worth people um, who are making the decision themselves whether they want to invest or not. Um, and so a lot of angel investors, especially early on for us, they invested because they had some connection to Parkinson's and they really cared about the problem. And they thought that we had a solution that can make a big impact on people. And so it was their decisions were much more emotional and didn't have to be validated as much with um you know the data on acquisitions and the data on okay here are five other companies that have the same uh business model that we have and they've been successful you know they didn't need all of that information they could make decisions much quicker and much more based on an emotional pull Whereas VCs need a lot more of that data because they have to go report back to their LPs. You know, here's how this company fits into our thesis. Here's how we're going to make your money back in, you know, call it a 10-year fund in the next seven years. And, you know, here's, it falls within our risk tolerance and it falls within, there's, people have within their thesis, they have like sectors that they'll invest in. They also have, um, stages of companies that they'll invest in. There can be certain business models. For example, a lot of VCs need to see some sort of SaaS component to it, some sort of software. Some VCs will only do hardware. So there's all sorts of uh, criteria that you have to meet to be able to fit into the thesis. There's also just a lot more, a lot more data and a lot bigger picture. Like angels, when I talk to angels outside of what we just talked about, when I talk to angels, they say, okay, how can you get to your first 
million. And, and they really want to dive into that. They really want to dive into like, okay, what are you going to do in the next year? VCs want to know, okay, I think you can get to your first million in sales. I think you can get to your first five million in sales. How are you going to get to a hundred million in sales? Like they want to understand the bigger picture. They want to understand the moonshot, not how are you going to be successful in the next year? That's fair enough because they have, I guess, many different funders to, I guess, go back to and to report to. So it, it, their, their, their thinking extends beyond the current year. So that contrast definitely makes sense when you think along the logical consequences of how these different, I guess, people get the money that they're investing with. But speaking of, I guess, investing in your company um, and the results of that investment, how do you plan or how are you already getting your device out to patients? You mentioned that the clinical route certainly is one way that you're doing. And you mentioned the DTC route or the direct-to-consumer route. What do you mean by the clinical route? Do uh, physiotherapists, physical therapists, uh, otherwise like prescribe these devices? Could you clarify how exactly you're going to market? Because it's a little fuzzy to me. Um, so we have a couple of different channels. Our biggest channel is direct-to-consumer. So people can go online, purchase on our website. We also sell to hospitals and physical therapy clinics. We sell to the VA. Our device is 100% covered by the VA for any veteran. So the VA will order from us directly. And we sell to distributors, both internationally and mm -hmm. domestically. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take you to build up these different channels? Or were certain channels, I guess, already built in, especially because you had Jack and the communities that came with him and his connections? Uh, pretty early on in the formation of the company. Yeah, what's interesting is when we got out on the market pretty early on, we had international distributors coming to us saying, hey, we can handle all the paperwork if you let us sell in Australia or in New Zealand or in Denmark or Sweden. And so there was really not a whole lot of downside for us. Um, you know, we looked into the company, we interviewed some of the, some of the products they already sell and ask, you know, is this a good partner for you, et cetera, et cetera. We did our own due diligence. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of downside for us since we weren't planning on going into that market anyways. So that happened pretty quick, actually, those distribution partnerships internationally. And then domestically, you, you know, we had relationships a lot. One of our advisors is a pretty well-known physical therapist in California. And so she introduced us to a number of people. Um, and it just kind of grew from there a lot, really grassroots, you know, working with 10 physical therapists at first, and then each one of those introducing us to two more. And then eventually we're at 100 physical therapy clinics. Something that really helped was we were on a uh, wellness series that Dr. Becky Farley with Power puts on. Power is PWR, Power, uh, oh, what does it stand for? Parkinson's Wellness and Recovery. What's with the lack of vowels? <laughs> Um, but a lot of, so she has a certification program that a lot of physical therapists go through to be certified, to be able to specialize in Parkinson's treatment. And so yeah. a lot of physical therapists follow her wellness series and, and webinars. And so when we did a webinar with her, we had a lot of inbound interest from physical therapists as well. So that makes sense. Yes. It, it takes time. I mean, I think if we had, you know, tens of millions of dollars up front, we could probably do it faster. Um, 
But for us, yeah, it took probably six months to get into 100 clinics. That's amazing. That's that that progress in itself must have been pretty exhilarating to see from from the ground up. But I mean, to step aside from the, I guess, journey of how you've built your company so far and the the stories that you've told, the impact that you've already made, um, the inner workings of how your company has evolved has been pretty interesting too. specifically, to put it, the decision to go fully remote. And this has probably been talked to death on a whole bunch of mainstream channels so far. But um, really, like with startups, I've heard anecdotally, there's not much data to support this, or at least I don't know if data to support this, but I've heard that that close quarters collaboration items that need to be completed now tends to drive innovation, tends to drive, uh, you know, a culture that, I guess, you know, begets excellence. Why do you think your company has thrived or has not thrived because of the changes that, you know, you decided to implement? So I think that you can definitely recreate that virtually, that like sitting next to someone and being able to just kind of turn your chair and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Um, with a lot of tools. I mean, there's so many tools that you can use online. I do still think that in-person relationships are built in person and in-person meetings are important. Um, so we do meet quarterly once um, in person with the whole team. Um, but in general, you know, I think that one, this allows us to hire the best talent because they're the best talent is all over the world. They're not in one place. Um, it allows people to be able to be where they want to be. And it forces us to put in place a system of accountability that allows people to really have control over when they're working on what they're working on and what they're doing. And it's really results driven, which I think is beneficial for a company, especially at our stage. It's not about, mm -hmm. you know, are you in the That's office 24 seven? It's about how much work do you get done? Yeah, I guess that's a fair assessment. Like if you get the work done, then I don't care like what you're doing as long as you get it done within the target period of time. Yeah, we had one of our employees worked from, she's in Dallas. She worked from Seattle for a week last week. You know, I don't care that she's in Seattle. I don't care if she, you know, on her lunchtime is taking walks around Seattle and checking it out. What I care about is if she's getting her work done and she does, you know, she goes above and beyond everything that I ask of her. And so, you know, she could be working in Seattle. She could be working in Dallas. She could be working in California. She could be on the beach in Hawaii. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. And it gives people autonomy over how they work and where they work best and allows people to really understand themselves that way. Mm -hmm. I guess one last question is, uh, as a founder who started their company in California, which to some extent has this, I guess, association as the mecca of startups. And as someone who's who bounces between Texas and California now, what are your favorite parts of either location or both locations as someone who is early in their career as an entrepreneur? Good question. Um, I think Silicon Valley has these kind of startup veterans, people who have done it 
five or six times. People have been really successful. Um, they have these, you know, really well-known, really successful VCs. And there's a lot of information and there's a lot of money in California. Um, what Texas has is this new ecosystem that's being built and this environment of everybody wanting to work together to be able to create an ecosystem, a startup ecosystem that's going to thrive for a long time. And that kind of teamwork, that like bringing everybody together is a really cool thing that doesn't happen in every startup ecosystem. You know, in Silicon Valley, it's become really competitive because there are so many people trying to start companies there. And there are a lot of people trying to start companies in Austin, but there's much more you know, we all rise together type of attitude here. And um, mm -hmm. I think that Texas, yeah, I think people are much more willing to work together, startups. And I think that um, VCs are much more open to having conversations with people outside of kind of the normal pipeline of how people of how VCs are fed new deals so for me when I first moved to Austin I, I think just like cold outreached um one of the partners at a VC fund here in Austin and he took my meeting like that would never happen in Silicon Valley never like they wouldn't even see my message and so I think that that's a pretty cool thing to be a part of and Probably as it grows, that's going to change, unfortunately. But I do think that there's a different culture here in Texas than there is in California. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting insight. And I'll definitely have to try that for myself someday. But before we close, is there anything in particular that you'd like the audience to pay attention to or do if they want to help support what you're doing with Doro? I mean, I think generally we covered it, but um, people can find more information about what we're doing at getnextray.com. Um, and I think, I mean, really my goal here is to share our story to help other people understand that they also can make the jump to start a company to help people. And I hope that we can get more impactful startups out in the world that will improve the quality of life of as many people as possible. That's fair enough. And you can find our podcast, Dear Listener, um, at howitsmed.com or howitsmed on any of the podcasts that you listen to. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.